This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The long-term care system is strained but not broken. After two years, that is the conclusion of the four-volume, 1,491-page report from the public inquiry into the safety and security of residents in the long-term care home system. It also says that the fact that killer nurse Elizabeth Wetlaufer could murder eight people without being caught was no one's fault, but rather the result of systemic vulnerabilities. Does that conclusion pass the buck? We'll drill down on that, as well as the chances that the 91 recommendations will be implemented. So, we have a full lineup in this special edition of Fight Back. We will be talking to the relatives and loved ones of some of the victims, as well as some advocates. But first, I'd like to go to Long-Term Care Minister Marilee Fulton. Hello, Minister. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, you're very welcome. Marilee Fullerton here, a previous family doctor for many years. Just wanted to correct the last name there. Okay, sorry about that. Um, was there anything in this report that surprised you? Well, it, it was a very thorough report, and I commend uh, Justice Calise and her team um, for putting it together. It obviously was a tremendous amount of work and reflection that went into that. So, so I, I really appreciate all the work that's gone into that. And I want to extend um, from our government the deepest condolences to the victim and and the families and friends of the victims, and uh, to everyone uh, of them who participated in the inquiry and had the courage um, to be there yesterday when when we spoke with them, and I had the opportunity to speak to the family members. I believe Susan Horvath uh, was also there yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, was there anything in this report that surprised you? Well, you know, it was it was a very thorough report that touched on many aspects of our long-term care system. And and we want to make sure that with that report and through the actions of our government, um, that the, the victims, the families, their loved ones, know that their voices are being heard and that their loved ones are, are going to be remembered and, and will have meaning. Um, going forward, their lives will have made a difference. Okay. Uh, the report, which some people have called, quote, wimpy, uh, said that there were no acts of individual misconduct by employers, supervisors, union reps, inspectors, regulatory bodies, that, that there was really nothing there. It was just, quote, vulnerabilities in the system. Do you agree with that? Well, let me just state really clearly that this was a horrible horrific tragedy and I I feel uh, my heart goes out to the families and everyone impacted by this Um, just horrific uh, tragedy and we need to take the recommendations in the report 
to heart. And that's what our government is doing. We're, we're committed starting with making sure that the family members and the loved ones and, and the surviving victim have counselling um, over the next uh, years, the coming years, uh, two years, to make sure that they are supported. Our government wants to make sure that they are supported and that we will act swiftly uh, over the next year and have a July 31st, 2020 report um, you know, outlining the uh, actions that we've taken starting now. And we are going to be consulting with the Premier's Council uh, subcommittee on improving health care and ending hallway medicine to make sure that we have an accurate um, impression of, of the sector, the long-term care sector, and how we can work collaboratively with our long-term care homes to make sure that people have a 21st century long-term care system that treats them with dignity and in a safe, comfortable environment. Um, This is absolutely the first step in making sure that that happens. And the recommendations, there's 91 and 1,500 pages. Um, We're going to be carefully reviewing those recommendations over the coming weeks. And, uh, you know, as a family doctor for decades and as someone who's dealt with uh, my own family members in long-term care, this is exceedingly important for me, and um, it's a very personal issue for me. I, and, and for so many of us. Uh, but, Minister, so for instance, one of the issues there was that despite the fact that this nurse made many errors before she was suspected of wrongdoing, she kept getting good recommendations. Her union grieved her firings, and she kept getting hired. Do you not see a problem uh, there? Of of course, and I'm very concerned about this. This issue has been raised by family members, and um, it is a concern. And uh, we we spoke with the chief coroner yesterday as well. And uh, there are changes that need to be made, and we're looking at making those changes. And when we review the recommendations in the coming weeks, uh, we will take action in terms of the recommendations. And some of them are systemic, as the justice has mentioned. Others are um, maybe able to be taken more specifically, but we will be looking very, very carefully over the coming weeks. This is extremely concerning, um, not only to our government, but we know it is concerning to, to Ontarians across the province. Well, yeah, and, and this is something that, that uh, you know, is across all kinds of professions yeah. where if, if if you want to let somebody go even for cause or whatever, you, you, the settlement requires a good recommendation. Yeah, I, I, I understand the concern in this area. And uh, we'll, I'll be working with the Attorney General, the Solicitor General, the Minister of Health, uh, and, and a government-wide approach to how we address... And, and the, the colleges of nursing and unions? Well, I, as I said, I'm going to have to go through those recommendations. Our, our ministry and our government is extremely committed to this and understanding how we make things better. We must make things better. Now, you've committed to providing more funding, uh, but the numbers that we're talking about might be staggering. So, for instance, just to take one recommendation, uh, they're talking about grants of up to $200,000 to improve the technology for medication monitoring. That's 626 facilities. So that that alone 
is uh, $126 million potentially. They're talking about beefing up the staffing. I mean, one of we know there are shortages in staffing. Nurses in long-term care and other professionals get paid less and the job is harder. So, I mean... Is your government prepared for a, a very large infusion of cash at a cost-cutting time? Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to have a comprehensive review of the recommendations and understand um, where this new funding can be best emphasized. And uh, it's, it's going to take an integrated approach. As I said, a government-wide approach. This is 91 recommendations um, that we take very seriously to heart. And uh, we have to address these issues, and we are going to do that, and it will require intense um, review. Uh, and But have you had any kind of preliminary conversations with uh, the Premier or the PMO about how much money might be available for this? Well, I think it, it really speaks um, volumes when you understand that the one of the campaign promises uh, going back uh, over a year ago now was for long-term care and 15,000 new beds, knowing that this was an extreme pressure um, for families and for the people of Ontario. And looking at the new ministry of long-term care, um, I think it really it really demonstrates the commitment that the, this government has. Our government is committed um, to improving the long-term care system in Ontario, um, bringing it forward to a 21st century system uh, with some of the prevention and awareness issues uh, and de- detection concerns and, and remedying those. The Justice um, uh, Gillies was very clear uh, that there needs to be more um, prevention and awareness, and uh, we take those to heart. Well, one of the things there, uh, there was talk about a study to determine appropriate levels of staffing. Do we need that? There have been many, many reports on what appropriate care in a home would be, and the homes are not at that level. And again, uh, the problems in staffing, shortages of staffing, people don't want to work there. So, I mean, I I don't even know how adding money will solve that problem necessarily. These these homes are underfunded and understaffed, generally. Well, if we look at creating the long-term care that we need for the 21st century, not only for an aging population, but looking at some of the um, innovation um, that can be done in terms of analytics, in terms of helping us identify um, and predict, um, you know, things like medication uh, management errors or um, in terms of staffing. And I think we have modern tools that we did not have before. Um, And the coroner, the chief coroner also touched on this. So, uh, undoubtedly, there were previous studies, but there are new ways of approaching. But ultimately, uh, you know, I believe very strongly that um, p- people in long-term care homes, the residents there, um, we need to treat them with dignity, and we need to have them in a safe and comfortable environment. And I'm committed to achieving that. Okay, well, Dr. Fulgen, thank you so much for being with us, and we will be checking back with you to see about progress on this file. Thank you. I appreciate that very much, and thank you for your attention today. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. We are now going to bring in Susan Horvath, and she is the daughter of Arpad Horvath, who was the last victim of serial killer nurse Elizabeth Wetlawfer. Hello, Susan. 
Hello. Uh, how are you feeling today? Do you have any kind of closure after this? No. How are you feeling today? I have a headache. <laughs> I have all the radio people calling. I have a lot of things going on. Um, I've done a lot of studying over the night time, reading this uh, report. <clears throat> I've had people call me, letting me know their opinions. And I must say, uh, well, you, you asked the questions, but I've, I've definitely got the info on this end. So. Uh, now, one of the things that the report said, that it is not assigning blame, that there are systemic vulnerabilities. Is that good enough for you? No, it's not, and I'll tell you why it's not. Um, number one, also in the same report, which is a bit of a contradiction, uh, they did mention that back in 1900s, 1970s, there has always been medical murders, okay? They've always been reported, and everything like that, it's been made public, number one. There are many lawsuits right now going on with nursing homes, left, right, and center, um, for all kinds of situations like this, abuse and what have you. Wet is not the first, you won't be the last. And then there has been family grievances as well, where families have come forward and tried to talk to nurses in the um, uh, nursing homes, and, and, and the families were sometimes shunned. And I mean, I, I could go on. I was in it, like right front and center with what happened. So all I'm saying is that, no, that is something... I was shocked at, really shocked when I heard it, because there is blame. Again, we're taking the blame game away. The blame game has been played, the no blame game has been played through the entire inquiry. When we had the um, uh, coroner, a chief coroner up, we had the people from Meadow Park, from Crescent Care. We've had this cost a fortune, and all everybody's seen. Okay, not the players, but what we've seen was that the ball was always being passed. Well, nobody's ever done anything wrong. We're never going to blame anyone. This is uh, systemic. Well, okay, it's systemic. We all understand that. But there's negligence going on day in, day out. And when you have medical murders that are uh, there involved, and they're potentially a lot of places, I mean, sure, it's nice to say it's very rare, it's actually not that rare with statistics, um, that becomes negligence. That becomes uh, a situation of not systemic because they could go outside of that nursing home, which is not in the systemic setting, and go murder somebody on the street. Now are we still systemic? So, do you know where I'm going with that? Absolutely, and I totally understand your frustration. And 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 let me say, uh, you know, on behalf of everybody, my heart goes out to you. And now I am also bringing in Lisa Levin, who's the chief executive officer at Advantage Ontario, which represents uh, the nonprofit long-term care homes. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Libby. Lisa, we've been talking to Susan, uh, as uh, I'm not sure if you w- were listening to that, and she is very frustrated that no fault was found, not with anyone in the system, not with employers, supervisors, union reps, inspectors, regulatory bo- uh, bodies, or anybody in the long-term care homes. Uh, what do you say to her? Well, first of all, I, I mean, I have to extend my deepest condolences. I cannot imagine 
going through what she's going through and the other families are going through. Uh, you know, you, you place your loved one in long-term care, you expect them to be cared for, and then there's a serial killer. So, you know, I, I think what the commissioner found is that long-term care homes, the ministry agencies who provide nursing, the home care sector, the LIN, the College of Nurses, and the chief coroner all have to make changes. And so... Uh, that's certainly not going to uh, bring back her late father or any of the other victims. Uh, but we need to make a lot of changes in the sector. And the ministry, uh, the Minister of Long-Term Care has said she's committed to looking at changes. And we just need to move forward uh, to do that. What do you say to people who say, you know, all this, no blame, it's really passing the buck? Well, you know, I, I don't know the exact specifics of what happened. I mean, I sat through some of the, you know, the testimonials. Um, So I think that that's something that will have to be dealt with, uh, you know, in another court of law with the families. And, you know, certainly there's blame on Elizabeth Wetlaufer, and a number of shortcomings in the system were uncovered. And those need to be addressed. Uh what do you see as the most uh, urgent recommendations? And, and also I'm wondering about the fact, you know, it says there has to be study on what an appropriate staffing level is. Uh, don't you think we know? I absolutely think we know. And um, it's a shame that we have to wait a year for that study because we do know that we need more staff in long-term care and we don't just need registered staff, we need PSWs. Now, this the commissioner was focused on registered staff because that is who the focus was here. Uh, and so she was trying to keep to her mandate. But absolutely one of the most urgent things that we need in long-term care is to have more staffing. And because the acuity of the residents has gone up, and that's something the commissioner acknowledged, is that it's not a baby boom problem. It's that the people in long-term care are much sicker than they've ever been before, and they need more attention than they've needed before. Uh, what do you think that uh, your sector can do to attract more people? You have shortages of staff. Uh, They're paid less than nurses, say, in hospitals, if you're talking about registered. And the work is hard and getting harder, as you point out. Well, one of the biggest things is to have more staff, because otherwise it's a catch-22. People become burnt out if they have too much of a a workload, and then they feel that they can't uh, care for the residents as well as they'd like to. So that's demoralizing. And so that's one of the biggest things uh, is to get the funding for more staff. But our members are working very hard to do a number of things to help with uh, getting more staff and retaining them. And we are actually going to be developing our own strategy at our association to help our members with that. Susan, as you listen to to Lisa, what do you make of what she's saying? Okay. I see uh, when they were saying regarding the new funding envelope. Um, I think that's a great idea. There was nothing mentioned how much in the new funding envelope for starters for these homes because I have talked with nurses and people in long-term care homes and their envelopes are not a lot of funding to help in, in not much. So when it says new funding envelope, I would love to know the amount there. That would actually make a difference. Yeah, we all would. <laughs> yes. Number two, when we have um, sustained attention, which would be the 
key to make all of this happen, sustained attention. And that is something I was reading from Lisa, her comments regarding the inquiry, um, and it was that if we were to have sustained attention, this would all work. Well, again, what am I hearing? I'm hearing sustained attention, consideration, optional. These are So I'm not hearing mandatory. We're changing something now. I'm hearing in a year, could be, we would like, we need to. These are the words I'm getting. Yeah, I think uh, Lisa sounds like she is also frustrated by this. Uh, Lisa, the minister talked about technology, and, and there's this uh, this item in there where nursing homes can apply for grants up to $200,000 to help with that. How key is that, or are they focusing too much on technology? I think that the inquiry has made, made a number of broad-ranging recommendations, and that's one of them, and that certainly is important because we need to make sure that there's as much security put in place uh, when medication is administered uh, in the homes. And so the money that is uh, being recommended be available would be to improve and enhance that security and or hire additional staffing like pharmacists and pharmacy technicians to provide support in the homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, what is the level like now? Is it, you know, different in different homes? Because pharmacists are involved, are they not? Yeah, uh, all the homes have agreements with different pharmacy companies, and that's paid for through, you know, the funding envelopes. So, um, and then the medication itself is paid through the government. So, you know, it depends on how many people you have in your home and, and how much funding you get. Um, but there, the additional features that we're talking about wouldn't be covered within existing funding. Yeah, so uh, again, uh, you know, they're promising, they're asking for grants, and, and we have to see how much the government comes up with, but that could add up, as I mentioned, to $126 million. Uh, so uh, let's just take a call from Ken in Sarnia. Hi, Ken. How are you, Libby? Fine. How are you? Great. I, th- I think a lot of heads should have rolled in these nursing homes. Like, I don't think anybody was doing their job. Uh-huh. Like, how, how does this woman get access to all this insulin, and nobody questions it? Mm-hmm. This woman was fired from, I don't know how many nursing homes, and, and got hired immediately, and nobody checks into her background to see why she's getting fired? Well, you know, the one thing that I heard very clearly from the minister, and that is the situation where she was getting recommendations after being fired for medication errors. And again, people are are not doing their job. Well, that's sort of, um, you know, that's a problem with the way uh, grievances and unions work. And frankly, even when there's no union, I think across everywhere, when it's it's not easy to let people go. And, and often, even if you let people, somebody go because they're making a mistake, part of the settlement is you have to give them a recommendation. That's not right. Uh, yeah, that and is, that is the that one is thing. That's not right. I agree. That is, and that's the one thing that I heard the minister uh, say that that it sounds like they really might deal with that. Ken, thanks for your call. And and Lisa Levin, how important is that in terms of staffing and disciplining uh, staff and all of that? Yeah, no, I think it's critical. And uh, Ken brought up an, an excellent point. 
that uh, homes should not be writing positive letters of reference. Uh, you know, but at the same time, there's a, a big issue with the way that the labor relations process is in Ontario in relation to long-term care. And in some cases, homes are forced to write positive letters of reference um, as part of the labor relations uh, process. And so in our recommendations, we, which we made to the commissioner, that was one of the things that we asked to be trained that we asked be changed. And one of the things that we feel, if that had been in place, perhaps could have prevented uh, Elizabeth Wetlawford from continuing and, and her murders. Let me, let me just clarify. So this is something because, uh, is it, was it the unions that were grieving these firings and, and that was part of a settlement? Uh, were there lawyers involved in this? How, how does this happen through the labor relations process the way things are now? If someone is unionized then uh, and they are terminated, then there are often a grievance is filed. And I don't have the exact details because I'm not a labor lawyer, but there's usually a settlement that comes out of it and sometimes it's arbitrated. Uh, it's like binding arbitration. And the homes are told the, as employers what they must do. And so in some cases they are told to reinstate workers in some cases, they're told they must write a positive reference letter. And this is not an isolated incident. This happens quite a few times. You, it happen, uh, it happens not, not just in long-term care. It happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. Uh, probably, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in this case, though, we're talking about dealing with vulnerable populations. Exactly. And we can't take the risk of having staff who, you know, who shouldn't be caring for individuals in those situations. Okay, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, that's interesting that you say that if, if that had been different, then maybe some of this could have been prevented. Lisa Levin, I know that you have to go. Thank you very much for being with us. You're welcome, Libby. Okay, and uh, we continue with with Susan Horvath. We are going to bring in other voices momentarily as well. And and Susan, what do you think when you hear that? This, you know, that's the way it works in labor relations. And she's right. Often, the homes would have been forced to write write those good letters of reference. And that's forced by the union. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, it might have been by, and I think every case is different, but the union would have grieved, and it might have been an arbitrator in, in binding arbitration, uh, because usually the way these things go is that they go to mediation. I, it's probably a little different with unionized workers, and that that's how it's done. I'd like to, if you don't mind, answer that gentleman's question, how Wetlawfer got away with all of this, if that's okay with sure. you. Wetlawfer, once we got the reports and the defenses from these nursing homes, she was the night shift nurse. So she was on, and she was, I think, responsible for, am I lying, 80 or 90 seniors? Like, I mean, this was a ridiculous number. Mm-hmm. And this is because it's a private home, for one. Number two, the business owners of the homes, both Caress and Care Meadow Park, they didn't want to pay any more and have night shifts because they're saving their thirty, forty, fifty thousand. And uh, so she was on her own. So when you're on your own and you have no supervision and you're the supervising nurse because you are on your own, I guess she's basically able to get away with whatever she wants to, really. Well, yeah, that that is 
pretty clear. And uh, some of the recommendations, if they're saying have medication in glassed-in places and use technology so that it uh, it's it's better monitored. I mean, I know that. I was once at Humber River, which is all automated, and in terms of medication, it's all barcoded. Like, they, you, you use a barcode to get somebody's medication, and then you have to check it with the actual patient. So there, there are technological solutions to this, not to mention just having everything, you know, out in the open and maybe with a camera, uh, which is, uh, you know, less technology. But, but absolutely, she was the night nurse, and part of the issue is, you know, it, it's not necessarily that easy to find somebody who wants to work overnight. Well, no, and the nursing homes and the cutbacks, and they're offering a salary, and they're putting, they're loading up these people with all kinds of seniors. They can't humanly, physically do the job. The owners know this. I'm almost positive, but uh, it's all about money in the bottom line. And this is why I met Doug Ford uh, last week. He was in the Lucan area near London here and Mount Bridges, and I had the uh, privilege of meeting him. And I spoke with him uh, face-to-face, and I asked him, please look into this situation. He mentioned his brother Rob that had passed and how he had good relations with the nurses, and he understands the stress and the low pay. So he, as a premier, does understand this. But he did mention that he can only work, or the conservative government, can only work in a perimeter. And that, again, is another touch word with me, perimeter, because I see a bracket of uh, finances or funding, and that is why, yes, they brought up that they will go to different municipalities to bring the funds together. But then when they come up with all these grants and money that supposedly they're going to need, we hear another word that's got me going, and it's called up to. The grants are up to 200000 We don't know if it's a $5,000 grant for no, it's from like the, the The floor on that is 50000 It's 50000 to 200000 okay. But okay. we still have to hear how much money they make available to it. Well, yeah, yeah. And, the, and the envelope, and there's just so many ifs. Libby, there's so many ifs here. And then when you have the government saying, you know, we have a process, and now, you know, we'll, we'll get back to you in touch next year, and we'll let you, we'll update you. I mean, are you kidding me? So in the meantime, there's more seniors that are ill. More seniors could possibly die. The evidence in the reports of the medical killers stems not only in long-term care, but in also our hospitals. This is, this is a, a catastrophe, and nobody wants to just go up to the plate if we need more nurses, Starting tomorrow, why don't we just hire some more nurses? Or everything is this very drawn-out, documented process. And meanwhile, people's lives are still at stake here. I I hear you. I'd like to bring in now, we have a caller named Jean in Palmerston, who uh, was a nurse in a caressant home. Hi, Jean. Hi there. How are you? Fine. How are you? Thanks so much for calling. What is your perspective on this? So there are just so many issues here. First of all, insulin, they're talking about controlling the insulin. Insulin is available in any drugstore behind the counter. You simply have to ask the pharmacist for it. Right. And it is a potentially deadly drug for anybody at all. And it doesn't take a great deal of insulin to do that. And there's no way they're going to track that. I've worked in these hospitals. There's one nurse giving medications, one registered nurse. So there's several issues with the nursing increase. A, pay equity was made years law years ago. Why are long-term care homes allowed to pay less? And I've asked the Lynns that. I sit on local council, 
and I've been actively involved in politics for nursing for years, trying to advocate for nurses and the role and the importance of our role in healthcare. Caressant cares, no homes should be allowed to be privatized for nursing homes because they're making a profit. Wellington County has one subsidized long-term care. It's an excellent facility because it gets funded to the tune of $7 million over and above the provincial base funding. And that all goes to the residents because they're not making a profit. These homes, they take their provincial funding. They pay for what they need for the patients. My father died in Crescent Care. My stepmother also died in Crescent Care. I had times my father was in the locked unit, which was inappropriately locked. And they would bring in two meals for the night. And they'd say, we're out of food. I said, well, what do you mean you're out of food? They said, well, this was the popular choice in the dining room, and this is the leftover. I said, so who's going to play loaves and fishes? Like, who's going who's gonna to be holy there here and turn this meal into enough for 26 people? They said, well, we'll give them their HS snack. I reported long-term care, crescent care. I asked to speak with Jim Laval, the owner. They declined. My father fell in the unit. It wasn't adequately sized for the number of people. Broke his hips and subsequently died. I so sorry to hear standards. that. I spoke to the ministry. They could do nothing about it. They said we could call him for a meeting. He will not attend. I spoke to his publicist because they closed some of the beds of the one in Harrison and said it was geographical. I said it's not geographical It's because nobody wants to go to your homes because the care the, the, they cannot care for the patients adequately. When I worked in that home on the floor, we counted the time we had from supper time to getting people to bed. We had five minutes per residence, and that allowed us no time to go back to do second wet checks. So on night shift, when you arrived, those patients were all, the ones that were in Cotton were all soaking wet. The care is substandard. The Ministry of Health needs to step up to the plate and be what they call themselves, Minister of Health and Long-Term Care, and they need to take care of these people. These people created this country for us, and they're getting substandard care. And we're all forced to have two jobs because we cannot manage financially, so our loved ones have to go into care. You cannot find private care, even if you can afford it. So we have to put them in these homes. And Elizabeth Wetlaufer was an outlier. I mean, she had psychiatric problems. The problem is that she could do that, but you'd be hard-pressed to stop that. Insulin is ready available all over the place. That's that's true. We've had uh, other stories on Americans coming here to buy insulin. Yeah, you just have to go to the drugstore. Jean, thank you very much for your perspective. Uh, really appreciate it. Okay, and we're going to bring in, before the break, Jane Metis, who is a counsel with the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. Jane, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Jane. So, Hi, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. You've been hearing all of this. Uh, mm-hmm. What's your take? Well, I mean, I think that there's, you know, good and bad things with the report. Um, I think that definitely uh, we are dealing with systemic issues here. Uh, we do have to fix up the system. Um, I think with having the new Ministry of Long-Term Care, one hopes that's a positive in that it's been pulled out of the, you know, health care system where it used to sort of get a bit subsumed by some of the other things. So hopefully that means that she's got all of her attention in one place. Um, definitely we need more staffing. Um, I do think we do need studying, though. I think that there's sort of a two-part thing. There's no question that we don't have enough staffing in long-term care, and we could add that immediately. But I don't think we really know how much time it takes to take care of a a resident in long-term care today. Um, You know, there's a lot of numbers that get put around, but I've not ever actually seen somebody actually go in and do, like, an actual study. How long does it take to take care of that person? Um, I also agree that, you know, the report is, is very weak on 
talking about being critical of some of the people. It goes through some of the, you know, it goes through the evidence, um, and it sets out the facts as it was found, but it it's not um, critical in the way I think it should have been. Um, Justice Scalise definitely said that, you know, the fact that they weren't finding misconduct didn't mean that there weren't individual shortcomings, but it sort of left in a way to the reader in a lot of cases to figure out what those were. Yeah, I mean, uh, do you think it was passing the buck and just trying to be nice and not offend anyone? Yes. <laughs> That's Susan. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay, Susan. We, we, um, we, we appreciate your input. Well, Jane, I mean, do you there agree? are some legalities around um, making findings of misconduct. Um, uh, so I think that, that may have been a part of it. Um, I also think that there is also a risk if you said it was, you know, Joe Blow that, that did this wrong, then I think it gives the rest of the system a pass. And, and as we've heard, you know, it is not, you know, yes, there was this one nurse who did this bad thing in this home, but there, as, as Susan said, there's many homes, there are a lot of problems in long-term care, and so we wouldn't want it to just be this one specific issue um, or one specific person. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, really, you know, there were people who, you know, weren't doing their jobs. I think that uh, it's indicative of people in other places that are probably not doing their jobs either. But, you know, it would have been sort of, I think, nice to, would have been helpful to, to have it a, a little bit stronger. Uh, Jane, please stay on the line with us. Susan Horvath, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, really appreciate your perspective. And uh, I hope that you can begin to put this behind you. Someday. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We have been talking with Jane Medis of the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. We are going to get CARP's perspective on this in a moment. We've heard from Susan Horvath and also from the Minister, Marilee Fullerton, uh, on what the government might be doing and when. Uh, but first, I want to get to Laura Jackson, who is a close friend of one of the other victims, Morris Granat. Hi, Laura. How are you doing today? I'm okay. How are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for giving us your perspective. And with everything that you've been hearing, are, are you satisfied, particularly with the fact that this report really does not assign blame to anyone? Sorry? There's a lot of culpability um, that, that was left out. Um, and uh, I think that was uh, uh, the biggest downfall of the report. Uh huh. And what would you have liked to see? I would have liked to have seen um, the College of Nurses being held a little more responsible for their actions. Um, I would have liked to have seen, like uh, a previous caller said, um, more um, actual, not blame, but uh, responsibility. Um, for what happened, because there's checks and balances in the system. There's supposed to be checks and balances, and most of them were ignored in this case. Okay, yeah, and uh, I guess uh, one of the things, I guess uh, the one thing I heard very definitely from the minister was that she was really going to take a look at the labor relations aspect where somebody with a history of mess-ups and medication errors even before the the murder uh, could get a good recommendation. I'd like to bring in Marissa Lennox. Hi, Marissa. 
Hi, Libby. So what is your take on this? What do you see as the most urgent issues? Well, certainly one of the biggest issues we have um, uh, sort of uh, most CART members see one of the biggest issues is, is of course, in the area of staffing. Um, Obviously, it's quite well known now that the only legislated requirement um, in long-term care homes is that there be one registered nurse on staff at all times. And we know that a lot of homes aren't even meeting that requirement. Um, But just sort of going back to your discussion on culpability and blame, you know, many of our CART members who are either in long-term care or loved ones in long-term care really don't have a lot of confidence that this type of thing couldn't happen to them. And of course, the serial killer phenomenon is somewhat unique to this inquiry. We do know that uh, incidents of violence and abuse has gone up in long-term care, and we really need to address that. But particularly with respect to the inquiry, talking about sort of the blame that we're putting on, um, putting blame on one individual person. The commissioner, of course, she was pretty clear yesterday that it isn't one individual actor responsible, but a series of sort of, as you know, systemic failings in the system that need to be addressed. And I don't actually necessarily disagree with that language because there were so many things that failed each of White Law's victims and their families um, that ultimately contributed to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Jane Metis, uh, so, uh, but you would have liked to see a little more, a little, a little more of a tougher conclusion. Well, I think that when you read it, you know, it, it sort of, in some ways, it leaves it up to the reader to conclude um, some of the issues. And I think there's some of the stronger language could have been there. Um, but, you know, we, we really need to see a change in the system. And there's no question that that's really where the change is needed. And what about the timelines, Marissa? You know, the the government has promised within a year they'll have more answers. And again, uh, Jane, you say that we do need more research on on how much time people need, but the number that I've already seen toted is four hours of care per resident, and that's, of course, not necessarily care from a registered nurse. Yeah, and I think that the problem with... The four hours is is different people count it differently and all of that. But I'm just, you know, at the way that they do it now, I'm not sure that four is enough. And that's why I think we really need to do a study. We know that we need more. You can add nurses right now, but we want to make sure that we're getting it up to the right amount. Um, and I don't know that we actually know that. That's, I, you know. Yeah, I don't disagree with Jane, actually. I think the... The concern with the four-hour number is that it results in the lowest common denominator. Then four hours is the only amount of time that you will get, and we want to ensure that patients are getting the most amount of care that they that they that they are that they deserve and need. Okay, Laura, um, w- would that be satisfactory from your point of view? Just more more time, more nurses? Yeah, that would be, be satisfactory. Um, I think that I think that if even just fifty percent of the recommendations made in this report, if they're implemented, then this whole process um, allows me to put Mo at peace. Um, it, 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 it like one of the ladies said, it's a systemic breakdown. The one thing I didn't agree with was saying that the system's not broken. The system's very broken, and it needs to be fixed in many levels. And like I said yesterday, um, everybody is going to be touched by a nursing home at some point in their life, whether they have to go to one or they have to put a loved one in a nursing home, a parent, a child, even just a close friend. So uh, there's a vested interest in us 
starting to fix the system now so that uh, by the time we get to the nursing homes, we, we receive better and the best care that we can get. Okay, uh, let's take a call from Bruce in Cambridge. Bruce, uh, we're starting to run out of time here. Uh, no problem, Libby. Hi. The, the Qu- things I'm thinking about is inventory control. Like, let's say you have, you know, 10 patients on a dose of insulin, and you order 10 doses for that week. That's all they need. But you're going to 30, 40 doses, which would have been needed to kill them. Like, doesn't somebody catch on to that and say, wait a minute, where's all our insulin going? And, and they're paying more money for it, so it just doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah, I think- go ahead. Okay, Bruce, I'm going to let uh, the response to that happen. Uh, you know, we've heard about more control over the medication cabinet. Yeah, I think that yeah. the, it's Jane, and I think that the, um, you know, the insulin is a difficult one because it's not dosed like other kinds of medications. So one day you may need a certain amount, and another day you may need another amount the way that it's actually dispensed is in pens, so um, there's a lot of wastage. Um, it's easier for the uh, administration. It's easier for the person to get it. But if there's only if you need three milligrams and there's only one left, they throw away that pen. So it's kind of difficult to monitor, and that's the problem. Um, that being said, there are ways to monitor that could be done better. Uh, that did not happen here. Um, there didn't seem to be any signing in and out. Um, and so they do need to have better controls, but it, 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 for sure it is a difficult thing to, be, to monitor. Absolutely, and, and I think that um, I would think if anything happens out of this, it will be that. Uh, we're very almost, very close to being out of time, excuse me. So, uh, Marissa Lennox, what would you like to leave us with? Well, we have to remember, too, that Elizabeth Wetlocker was stealing hydromorphones from patients and then Dealing it and sort of dealing it too. So one of the recommendations in the report is to manage medication through the use of technologies. And there was one suggestion too that you could implement or put in glass doors, for example, in some of these homes. And that would try to prevent anything nefarious going on behind closed doors, which obviously was something that Elizabeth Whitlocker had taken advantage of. Okay. And Jane, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I'd like to uh, leave with saying that, you know, we really do need more care in long-term care. We need to have quality care. We need to be paying the staff um, appropriately so we can get the staff that it's need. And we have a shortage of RNs, and we need to figure out how to do that because we just can't add RNs if they don't exist. Okay, that is all the time we have. Laura Jackson, friend of victim Maurice Grenant, thank you very much for being with us. Also, Marissa Lennox and Jane Meadis, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.